market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett. I'm a deputy political editor at The Paper. And this week with me, back from holiday, an extended two-week holiday, I should add, is our political editor, Alistair Grant, and also the other person who's been having to pick up the slack while Alistair's been away, um, our political correspondent, Rachel Amory. I should mention that Connor was on holiday literally the week before and has a tendency to go on holiday during the key events. So Programme for Government, off. The budget last year, off. I'm sorry to inform you that I'll be away for the budget this year as well. So it's just, there's actually, if you ever feel on these things, you're going to be a little, feeling a little bit sorry for Connor. Just forget it. Forget it. <laughs> it's true, I don't deserve it for a second. We have got a long interview with the Housing Minister, Paul McLennan, just on short-term lets, um, which will be later on in the episode. But we're going to kick off, I think, talking about the only a real kind of dramatic story in town this week, which is Fergus Ewing. Um, he's been given a provisional one-week suspension by the SNP MSP group. The vote happened last night as we record this, so Wednesday evening. It uh, lasted a long time, didn't finish until half eight, and it's certainly a watershed moment. Um, Alistair, take us through what happened and also what Hamza Yusuf had to say about it today after FMQs. Yeah, so I mean, this has been a long time coming, in a sense. It felt almost inevitable. Fergus Ewing, former uh, senior SNP minister, a kind of party grandee. He's been in Holyrood since 1999, since the very beginning. He was a, a cabinet minister up until 2021 under Nicola Sturgeon. But he's become increasingly kind of outspoken about his dissatisfaction with government policies, things like highly protected marine areas, the deposit return scheme, uh, the deal that the Scottish government struck with the Greens, that power sharing arrangement they have. He's been very outspoken about these things. Uh, but I think things really came to a head in June this year when there was a Tory tabled no confidence vote in Lorna Slater, the Scottish Greens co-leader, who is also a Scottish government minister. And Fergus Ewing sided with the Tories. He backed a no confidence motion. And that's a kind of a clear example of pretty flagrant disloyalty to his party. So I think after that happened, the expectation was that he would be disciplined in some shape or form. He obviously had a delay because of the sad death of Winnie Ewing, his mother. He then had a delay, I think this was supposed to happen a week ago, and then we had it. The vote finally happening on Wednesday evening this week. So I think it was 48 SNP MSPs backed the idea of suspending Fergus Ewing for one week. Nine MSPs were against it and there was four abstentions. So I think there's probably two aspects to this. The first is that it is inevitable. There's been a lot of commentary around this that I think is a little bit disingenuous about the idea that this is somehow something that Hamza Yusuf or the SNP could have avoided, that they've kind of gone down this dangerous route by disciplining Fergus Ewing, particularly so close to a by-election. Uh, and there is obviously merit to that, but the problem is that I think any political party would have had to have done the same. There are certain lines in politics you can't really cross. I mean, it, it's okay to have internal criticism, internal kind of debate about policies. I think that's that's fine and that, sh that should happen in a healthy political party, something that perhaps the SNP aren't used to, but it should happen. 
But I think there are, there are lines you can't cross, and one of those lines is, is definitely backing a, a, an opposition party's motion of no confidence in a government minister. Uh, so it's not a surprise that they had to go down this route. I think they, they basically had to do something. And if, if the SNP leadership hadn't acted, they would have looked extremely weak. So all these opposition politicians, particularly the Conservatives, who are making hay with this now, would have also have been making hay if Fergus Ewing was doing all this stuff but not having any consequences on it. So they were kind of cornered into this position. But the second thing to say is that it, it, it nevertheless is still a headache for Hamza Youssef. I mean, Fergus Ewing represents the kind of rural pro-business wing of the SNP. There are a lot of, I think, members of the SNP, particularly perhaps in areas like the Highlands and Islands, North East, who would have sympathy for some of his policy positions. Certainly a lot of anger in the Highlands over the failure to, du to duel the A9 on time. So I think there's a lot of sympathy for his positions. And I think having someone like him, and he is undoubtedly a heavyweight, you know, when he stands up in Hollywood and speaks about something, people listen. You know, journalists put down their pens, they, they listen to what he's got to say. So I think having someone like him as someone who who's quite it made it quite clear actually in the aftermath of this that he's not going to stop he's going to continue being outspoken about these things is a problem for Hamza Yusuf and I think the other problem is that there were nine people who did not back that suspension of Fergus Ewing and that's quite a big kind of rump of the party that have basically drawn a line in the sand and said that they're willing to go against the leadership. Uh, Rachel, obviously we had quite a, a visible kind of demonstration of exactly what Alice is talking about with Kate Forbes stood next to Fergus Ewing alongside his sister Annabelle Ewing and also Christine Graham, the veteran MSP who represents um, one of the Borders constituencies. It was a kind of a visible kind of stance from the defeated leadership contender, no less, and another Highlands MSP of backing Fergus Ewing and be going against the leadership and the, and the whips. You've obviously covered the Highlands in, in a way that Alistair and I haven't. What's your sense from SNP supporters in these areas? Do they have sympathy with Fergus Ewing and Kate Forbes on these positions? You know, is it something that Hamza Youssef is going to be or should be concerned about ahead of a general election next year? Yes, I think it was very interesting to see Kate Forbes's reaction before and after the vote happened, because as she said, she was very much right beside him as he made that statement to journalists afterwards. And let's not forget, while she lost the leadership election, she did get a fair chunk of the vote. I mean, it was not inconsequential, the numbers that she, she managed to rack up. So there is clearly a, a, a large part of the party who does support her politics and to see her then standing with Fergus Ewing will be um, a problem going forward for the SNP. As to how big a problem, we're not too sure yet. But I mean, the, both Katie Forbes and Fergus Ewing are clearly popular politicians in the Highlands. Both have, well, the last election, certainly, Kate Forbes had a huge majority in her constituency. And as you said, Fergus Ewing has been here since devolution, so clearly popular people up there. But like you said, I think it's more the policies that he's choosing to speak out against. He was very angry about high-protected marine areas, um, to the point where he ripped up the document in the middle of the chamber. And that didn't go down well on coastal communities in the Highlands. And as you said, the A9 is something that's been causing a lot of upset um, in that area. I know myself because I live on the A9 as well, so I definitely realise it's, it's a big issue that needs sorting. So I think when it comes down to these individual policy issues, yeah, I think people in the Highlands do understand where he's coming from there. And I think, Alistair, that's a problem for the SNP, isn't it, going forward? You know, you can discipline a local MSP or, an, or one of your own MSPs for voting against the government in a no-confidence motion. But if you've got a group of... Uh, MSPs based across the country saying that your central government agenda is 
against the interests of, of their constituents. And that's what Fergus Ewing was particularly keen to highlight, was that he doesn't believe that this government stands up for Scotland in the way that it used to. That's going to be an issue going forward, particularly when the likes of Kate Forbes and the likes of potentially even Stephen Flynn down south, you know, are, are on manoeuvres to, you know, get rid of Hamza Yusuf when the time is right. Yeah, I think like Rachel was saying, it remains to be seen how much of an issue this is going to become. I think Fergus Ewing speaking to journalists today, we're recording this on Thursday, and he mm. spoke to the media after First Minister's questions and was basically declined to say whether he would rejoin the SNP at the end of his uh, one-week suspension period. So he's kind of deliberately keeping that slightly vague at the moment. And I think there's a lot of speculation about what his long-term game is. I think there's no real expectation that he will stand again in Holyrood in 2026. As I say, he's been here since 1999. Uh, so I think for the remainder of his time here, he could just you know, remain as outspoken as he wants in these issues. He's got nothing to lose. And I think having people like Kate Forbes, who's an extremely talented politician, obviously, as you say, lost the leadership election, but has a lot of support among a certain section of the party. I think having that group in Holyrood, Ivan McKee as well, another one, who are quite willing to kind of speak out in these issues will be a problem for Hamza Youssef. It's probably more of a problem simply because, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we're not used to it in the SNP. It's not something that has happened in Holyrood, really. We've had other parties where you've had sections of them, you know, for example, Labour, where there was a kind of more left-wing section, previous leaderships, and they were quite happy to speak out against them. But we've not really seen it in the SNP. So I think it'll be difficult for Hamza Youssef to kind of manoeuvre his way around that. There was one... Uh uh, aspect of this, Rachel, that I thought was interesting was uh, one government figure who I, I spoke to around this basically said that removing Fergus Ewing, if only for a week, you know, it's a watershed moment, regardless of how you put it, but obviously, you know, removing Fergus Ewing full stop from the party for any period of time, they claimed was kind of symbolic of how the SNP were changing and that this was a positive piece of symbolism given that Fergus Ewing kind of represents old SNP. Do you think that that's based in any sort of reality or is that just wishful thinking? I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it because if you're talking about sort of the new guard and the old guard, I mean, Fergus Hewing is definitely in with the old guard because as you said, he's been there since devolution, was a secretary in previous cabinets under previous first ministers and um, has a long legacy there, whereas Humsey was trying to sort of establish himself as this, this new government and the new first minister. So perhaps, yeah, perhaps you can see it as a point of cutting between the two there. But we've also been discussing, like, while in the Hollywood bubble, this is quite exciting for us to talk about and um, lots of people are speculating as to what this could mean. I'm not sure how much that's that in that area is going to impact on just sort of the general public how much are people going to say oh isn't this great that this is now going to held in a new era of the SNP in Hollywood I'm not sure that's what people are going to be thinking about it'll be interesting to see the long-term effects of that now let's hear from Paul McLennan the housing minister um, I spoke to him earlier this week ahead of the deadline for short-term let operators to apply for a license one of the dominant topics of recent weeks <laughs> So hello to Paul McLennan, the Housing Minister for the Scottish Government, um, here on the Steamy this week, ahead of what has been quite a controversial policy deadline, if you like. Paul, obviously, licensing scheme deadline is October the 1st. Can you just take us through why the government views this reform as necessary? 
And good afternoon, Connor. I, th- I think there's a key fundamental, obviously, is around about health and safety, mm-hmm. and that's why the legislation w- was brought in. This was brought forward as an, a programme for government in 2018. It's been consulted on on a number of uh, occasions uh, as well, and obviously, I, I picked up the, uh, the uh, when I took on the brief, picked up this piece of legislation. So it's about health and safety. It's making sure we've got the same standards as hotels, uh, for example, and that's been the main thrust of of the policy. We've heard a lot from campaigners over the last few months, particularly as we've approached this deadline. I'm intrigued. Obviously, the Scottish Government, particularly since Humzi Yusuf has come to to power, has talked about a reset to business. Now, this is a business-focused scheme that business is telling you is an absolute shambles. How do you respond to that and what's motivating that kind of vociferous criticism? I think there's been a number of opinions on on both sides uh, around about this. And I think in my, my first week in the post I met with the ASSC and discussed the policy. I've met with them on a number of occasions talking about it and even this morning for example talking around about it and we'll continue to do so as the policy is implemented. I think there's been discussions around about how onerous the policy is and one of the key things for me that's kind of come through is we've been meeting with Solar who are the mm-hmm. local authority licensing authorities and they've been giving us feedback that when people actually apply for it it's a lot simpler than, than they've been told so I think there's a perception out there as well that it's a complex uh, issue. But certainly the feedback we found from, from Solar that's not the case. So what, why are businesses, what's motivating this, this campaign to get to, to extend the deadline? If, if everything is fine? I, th- I think, you know, some businesses, um, I, I say it's onerous, obviously the SSC have come out and I've said that it's complex, it's too complex a, a, a process. I, I, I don't agree with that. I think the local authorities have been very helpful. They'll be working right up to the deadline to work with businesses. And I think one of the key things and key message to get out is people can apply, need to apply before the 1st of October, existing businesses. But they've got 12 months to get their licence. So local authorities will continue to work with businesses uh, going, going ahead. And as I said, you know, if you're talking about approximate costs between two hundred and fifty and four hundred and fifty pounds, you're talking about five every week, and that's over three years, approximately. Now, the more businesses they have, the more units they have. Of course, there's going to be more the cost, mm. but proportionately, you're talking around about you know five every week, if, if that. There was so- someone on uh, social media, I think, earlier today. Basically, I think they owned three properties in Edinburgh and said that they had to spend three thousand pounds for a one-year license to cover to cover all of those. The particular business owner said that this was quite eye-watering and, quote, a racket. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be in the local government committee when this legislation came forward, and one of the things we talked about was the cost, and it's on a cost recovery basis. Now, that cost recovery might be different from different local authorities, but it was on a cost recovery basis. Now, not being able to comment on what they, how many units they had and, and what work was entailed, I think, again, it was cost recovery, and that's an important point to stress. Now, I don't know if there was additional work that the person needed to do. If there was, that kind of highlights the case when why we needed to bring the legislation in, in the first place, and that's bringing up the same standards, as I said, as house hotels, for example. So do you, do you think that businesses fundamentally who are complaining actually can just afford this and should just stump up the money and stop complaining? Obviously, we're encouraging everybody to apply to apply for the process. You know, this was, you know, they could have applied from October last year, so they've had a year to apply. The legislation has been known for around about 20 months now. Mm-hmm. So businesses have, have known for a long period of time. Uh, we've been publicising it as a government. Local authorities have been publicising it as a government. And I know sometimes in terms of how people see things in terms of applying for licences on, some people leave it to last minute. But this has been known for a, a long period of time in terms of that. And I think it's coming back to the, the main thrust of the policy is, is to, to talk about health and safety. We want to make sure that when people come into Scotland to visit, they know they're getting you know the, the proper safety standards that they expect. Fundamentally, though, you know, businesses are looking at this from a cost 
perspective for them. Is it not the case that a policy has failed when businesses are closing their doors because of additional cost? I, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think when you look at the cost of living, there's obviously been many issues that have impacted on business over the last number of years, and particularly in the last year. You know, If you're talking about where inflation, you know, food, everything else is costing more. Borrowing costs for, for properties are obviously costing, uh, costing more. There's obviously support for the sector. Tourism in Scotland has been doing quite well in terms of recovery from COVID and continues to do well, and, and I expect it to continue to... To do that, so I mean, there are other other factors that have kind of come into that as well in yeah. terms of cost of living. And we've seen businesses struggle, and, and the other thing, obviously, is talking around about energy costs, mm-hmm. which again, for businesses who may be open twenty four hours a day, that's obviously going to add to a substantial cost of that. But coming back to the point, you're talking around about five pounds a week for the cost of a license. If there's more work required, again, it comes back to that that should have been in place in in the, in the first place. So you just don't buy that these these businesses can't afford it. We have to appreciate. Where there is issues around about you know the, the other costs, cost of, of cost of living crisis, fuel, living costs, and so on. In terms of the actual cost for the license, I said it comes back to around about five five a week approximately. Now, obviously, if people have got more units, the cost will be more, but there'll obviously be more income that comes in in, in terms of that. But of course, we listen to what you know constituents are, are saying and, and trying to look about how we support the sector more broadly as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, before we started recording that you just had a meeting with Fergus Ewing, obviously arch-government critic at the minute, potentially not an SNP MSP for much longer, probably not by the time this, this interview goes out. He accuses this policy of undermining you know, one of Scotland's great success stories in, in Scottish tourism. Um, I think in, a, in a, an association, the Scottish Self-Caterers press release, he called it misconceived, costly, potentially unlawful. He said if it wasn't halted, it would cause irreparable damage to a sector with thousands of businesses impacted, not because they won't apply, but because some simply can't. Obviously, presumably, he's made the same representations to you. Yeah, Fergus has made his views known all the way all the way through this, and, and of course, I, you know, wanted to, to listen to him and, and, and obviously pick up his views this morning. His views didn't change in terms of that. Obviously, the legislation has been in place for a, a number of months. We've obviously consulted on, on it on a number of occasions as well. It was voted on in Parliament on a number of occasions as well. So it's gone through the parliamentary process. It's gone through the committee process. Fergus is obviously entitled to his, his view, but it's not one that I share. Um, obviously, we'll continue to monitor the, the implementation of, of the, the policy, and th- that was always the case. There was always an implementation review being planned early in, in the year, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, to progress ahead, ahead with that and work with stakeholders in, in that regard. But that's always been the case, that, that that was planned months and months ago. Fergus's views remain the same. Well, we'll come back to that review later on, but is, is he misguided? Has he been fed misinformation? No, I, I wouldn't call Fergus misguided. He's obviously been an MSP for uh, a long number of years. Obviously, he shares a different opinion to, to myself and, mm-hmm. and and other colleagues in, in in terms of that. So I wouldn't have you know call Fergus misguided. I think it's just a case he has a different opinion. I listened to him, respected it, didn't agree with him in that regard, but we'll still listen to, to what he has to say. Let's stick on the tourism thread. Obviously, you know Edinburgh well, um, as do I. Edinburgh Fringe relies heavily on Airbnbs and short-term lets and room shares and all of all of these sorts of things that fall under the short-term let licensing. And some some who run the Fringe, you know, um, have said that it's going to make attending and performing even more costly. It might even threaten the the future of the festival itself. And um, 
Do you think that's fair? Do you think that's realistic? I think there are a number of, of points around about that. I, I met with the Fringe and, and Festival prior to becoming a minister, just kind of discussions around about the committee. Um, there's obviously one of the things that they're kind of pushing us around about the exemptions, mm. that ability that the, the council have. So we'll continue to discuss how that works with the festival and, and Fringe, and particularly around about, maybe around about Christmas time as well. One of the key things when the policy was brought forward was around about is it, is it national, with, with national guidelines, or, or do we bring forward that overarching national policy, but given local authorities the ability, for example, to pick up on exemptions and so on. So we'll continue to have discussions with the festival mm. in French. Part of the review we're talking about will obviously look at things such such as that, and and, and that's discussing with local authorities around about how they've implemented the scheme and what we can do around about that. And we'll have discussions with the festival in French going forward to prepare us for, obviously, for, for next year. Do you think the city can cope with an ever-growing fringe? I, th- I think that's a broader discussion. I mean, obviously, we're, t- we're talking about... It's inherently linked to the short-term let discussion, yeah, though, yeah. given... I mean, short-term let is obviously one of the parts of the housing mix in, in, mm-hmm. in Edinburgh. You know, we're talking about student accommodation. Also, we need to be building more houses, the mm-hmm. homelessness issue in Edinburgh as well. That all comes into to the mix, and one of the key things for me coming into the post where there are 32 different local authorities, there are 32 different housing mixes, and each requires slightly different situations, so uh, solutions. So I think that's one of the key things, is, is taking it in that broader context. Tourism obviously brings a lot of money into the area as well, but we've got to look around about how does that fit in to the housing mix and what do we need to do in terms of that. That's obviously a decision, I think, for Edinburgh Council. I'm meeting Edinburgh Council on, on a monthly basis almost at this stage, yeah. discussing issues such as that, and we'll continue to do so and, and work, with, uh, work with them closely on that. Some campaigners around this policy have been quite strong with their language. I think we had a demonstration outside the Parliament a few weeks ago where we had campaigners likening the policy to a pogrom. and They said Holyrood was the Parliament of pogrom, pogroms even. We heard from B&B owners yesterday on social media, shared by the industry group, calling this you know, similar to the Highland clearances. What's your reaction to that sort of language? I don't think that's helpful in any political debate. I don't think it's been helpful in in, in, in this debate. But that, I think that's in any issues. Politics can be very emotional. I think the, the, the challenge to people who have their views is to try and keep the, the, their, their their language balanced. I don't think that helped the case. But we hear different you know, language used in different debates in terms of that. I think when you start to to err on to the side of mentions of pogroms or, or you know, linking it to the Highland Clearances, I don't think it's helpful uh, to the to the debate at all. Um, there have been you know, arguments that have come from both sides that have listened to it that have been very reasoned, and I think you know, in any debate, you know, I think a reasoned debate is a much better way to get your point across. Do you not think it kind of demonstrates how how angry these businesses are for them to resort to, you know, invoking things that are you know, arguably significantly more serious than what, what the actual policy that's going through through at the minute? There's obviously some people that, that aren't happy with, with the policy, and there's been polling that's carried out before that's demonstrated support for this. I think there's also strong support for the policy as well across uh, across Scotland, and I think, for example, I mentioned about the Coburn Association, mm. 11 9, for example, who put their point across in terms of particularly about Edinburgh and about short-term length. So there's, there's been that, that balanced debate, but I think, you know, when we're talking about language, it's used. You know, it has to be kept balanced. And I think you know people who are more balanced in terms of that will get their point across more succinctly. I think in terms of rather than using a motive language. Do you condemn that use of language? I, I don't think it's helpful. And, and, and you know whether any any debate, I, I just don't think that's helpful at all. You know, comparing it to a program or the Highland clearances, it isn't isn't helpful. 
and you would reject the, the characterisation completely. Yeah, presumably. of course, oh, of course. I mean, there are points being made by opponents of the legislation who have come across and been and who have been emotional about it, but have been very balanced in in terms of the point the way the way they put that across. Have campaigners made similar uses of language to you in private? No, I mean, there's obviously, you know, I'd imagine MSPs and, and ministers are, are, are often copied into LinkedIn uh, posts. It tweets mm. uh, and so on. You get the odd occasional one that, that kind of goes over the top. I think we all expect that as MSPs. If there's any, you know, if it oversteps the mark, there are processes in place that we can we can report that. But that happens very, very rarely. Is your government and this policy responsible for short-term let operators feeling like I think one of them said that they felt like a parasite and an outsider in their own community? Have you demonised short-term let no, operators? I, no, certainly not. I, I think in terms of coming back to the main point of it, obviously, is in terms of the safety aspect. And, and I think any business who has and applies for licence and gets a licence, I think this will be an attribute to the business. They can demonstrate that. I think there's a broader discussion around about short-term let control areas. We have that here in, in Edinburgh. And that's again, that was an instrument that was given to local authorities to control the balance, the mix, and that, that can be emotional around about that as well. So there's a suite of measures, and it kind of comes back and backs up the, the suppose the, the principles around about the very House agreement is, is, is obviously national government working with local government and giving them the, the, the powers to deal with things that are maybe, you know, that are more apparent in their own area. Edinburgh, for example, have got the short-term lights control area. There are a few other local authorities I'm aware of considering it, but that's up to the local authority in terms of what they deem to be the most appropriate policy for, for them. So there's that broader discussion with the licensing, but also the short-term let control area. And, and again, uh, I think that's up to the local authority to, to pick up on and, and engage with their own people in, in their own local area. I think there was a, there is some talk from the ALSC recently basically raising that I think 70% of self-catering operators that they polled hadn't applied for a licence due to concerns about their personal data and how that was used and shared. They have asked the Lord Advocate, or for the Scottish Government to ask the Lord Advocate, to review the impact on privacy and personal and protection of personal information. Um, has she? I, I understand that's been raised with the Lord Advocate. I think that's something I've not heard back about that. That's something, obviously, the Lord Advocate would comment on. And, and certainly in terms of some of the issues that we've been raised, we've gone back and on every occasion to the points that have been raised by the ASSC. You know, obviously, as a bill's brought forward, the legislation has brought forward, it's, that element has is, is, been picked up on. Um, so it's not something that I'm all very concerned at, at, at this point. Said there's been various items or various issues that have been brought up by the ASSC which we've covered off and, and contacted the SEC and then gone back to them and saying, look, we, the, the policy we think is, we know is, is lawful. And what was the basis of how how you were going to put out the personal detail of, of operators? Was it based on how it was done with the landlord registry or with no, HMO licences? I, I think this was really just around about you know, how, the, how the, the application process, mm-hmm. how the application ap- application itself, you'll, you'll know for whether it's HMOs or, or planning, that there's various pieces of information that have to be made available. Mm-hmm. Um, this is no different. Mm-hmm. This is no different in, in terms of that. So we're, we're complying with what's already in place. So they're being treated uh, under the government's view like any other business yeah. or landlord? Yes. They also, uh, I think, released a press release earlier this week basically co- saying that they'd successfully challenged four councils' licensing schemes. I think that's in Argyll and Butte, Highlands, Dundee and Glasgow. And obviously we all also have the judicial review going on with around planning issues, obviously different um, in Edinburgh. 
I think uh, Fiona Campbell, who's the CEO of the AWSC, said, the legislation remains incompetent and not fit for purpose, and this sorry episode is yet more evidence of the need to pause and review licensing as soon as possible. You presumably disagree heavily with that? Yeah, I dis- disagree on that one. And I know the ASSC have written to various local authorities citing that they think their policy is unlawful. I wrote out just last week to local authorities asking them to be as flexible as possible. Mm. And, you know, in, in terms of giving them the, the flexibility for local uh, authorities to have their own conditions, then I've asked them to be as flexible as possible, given the feedback we've been talking about about some things you know, that they think are, are too So I think some local authorities have reacted to that. In terms of the other local authorities that have been mentioned, there's been no legal action actually taken out. I know we're aware of the GR, the judicial review was carried out previously, and the, the further one it's carried out. But local authorities have been flexible and will continue to be flexible. I wrote out to them last week. And, and again, the, the key point to mention to applicants is when people, you know, pick up the phone to your, the licensing authority, speak to them. Get your application and that's a key thing. They then have 12 months to work with applicants in terms of making sure they get the application through and get their licence. Do you think that the AWSC actually want this policy to go ahead or do they just want to see it cancelled altogether? I think they were clear about this. At the start they wanted a registration scheme mm-hmm. and for various, and they mentioned that when I was in local government committee. And local government committee at that stage decided that licensing was the best way to, to go ahead. So that had cross-party support. So they've always been in, in uh, support of a, a registration scheme. I think there's a role for them, you know, t- to speak to obviously to the representative members, and that's what they're there for, uh, and, and raising issues that they've picked up. I think they've asked us to pause and so on. We didn't agree at that particular point. We've worked with them all the way through this process. Uh, I know the SSC have said, you know, we've not been listening. I have met with them on about four or five occasions. Now we have to say that maybe not agreed, but we've certainly listened to them uh, in terms of that, and we'll continue to listen as we look at the post-implementation review of this as well. I made that point this morning. You know, Fiona Campbell was on the, was on the call with Fergus June this morning and made that point. You know, when we're reviewing the implementation, we want them to be part of that. They're part of the industry advice group, which includes Visit Scotland and the Scottish Tourism Alliance, and we'll continue to discuss with them around about this going forward and, and made that clear this morning. What do you make of... Edinburgh's MSPs, not all of them obviously, but some of them, um, most notably Daniel Johnson and Miles Briggs, being pro uh, an extension to this deadline. Do you think that they fully understand the issues at, at play? I, I think we've got different op- opinions. I, I think, and I have lots of respect for Daniel and, and Miles. Miles was on the local government committee. I've known Daniel and spoken to Daniel on various issues. We don't share the same opinion. I, I'm not, I, I think they're well informed, but I don't share the same opinion. And it kind of brings into to sharp contrast the, the views of their local council groups. In terms of that, we've seen, we've seen the position, obviously, in terms of the Edinburgh Council leader, Cammy Day, coming out and think, saying it should be extended then getting almost shot down by the whole council in terms of that and saying, look, that's not the case. We voted upon this as a, as a council mm. um, and, and wanted to do this. So the council have been very supportive of, of the legislation. It's up to Miles uh, and obviously Daniel in terms of the views that they take, but that's in sharp contrast to the to their, their councillors' uh, opinions on this, who have been council have been you know, very supportive of, of the policy. I'm not going to bother asking you whether or not this is going to go ahead Um, on the first because I think the government's position on that is pretty clear what I am interested in is you know what success looks like what what, how are you defining success for this this scheme 
one of the, the things, obviously, when we brought the policy forward was there wasn't a clear indication of what the number was in terms of looking at that. So I, I think it's trying to get as many people as, as, as possible applying before the 1st of October. And then, obviously, there's 12 months to get that to get that through. Success, obviously, we'd be making sure we've, we've got a suite of you know, short-term let providers who we know would have to meet the safety standards in, in terms of that. So I think, you know, that that, that would be success. Obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll review the implementation and that's working with local authorities in terms of what that looks like. We'll continue to, to monitor as it already goes on in terms of the how tourism is performing in Scotland. And on the call this morning, we had officials from the tourism side as well talking about that. And we'll continue to work with the SSC and, and, and other MSPs there's cross-party groups. I used to chair the cross-party group in tourism, so it's an issue that's really important to me and in my constituency. So, But it's making sure, we that coming back to the reason why the policy was brought in, we've got a sector we know that, that's safe and, and is, in, is in comparison with the hotel sector, for example. We obviously you know, hear a lot from campaigners on the other side to the ADLSC about how Airbnbs take away from the housing stock. Is that going to be defined within the kind of success of this policy, whether or not housing returns to the market? Or is that just a positive secondary result of this scheme? Or is it something the government actually want to see from the no, result I, of the scheme? I, I think it's much broader. And I touched earlier on and I mean about 32 local authorities having 32 different housing mixes. Edinburgh obviously has its, its specific issues yeah. because of the tourism in terms of that. And one of the key things that's probably been identified in terms of the scheme is there's also a requirement for planning permission if there's a material change of use from a property if it's going to become a, a, a catering a self-catering unit or, or you know any time other form of short-term lets now that's kind of brought up that there have been some operators who haven't been aware or, or you know in terms of that, that they required that so that that's obviously an issue and that's primarily around about, and this is Edinburgh's policy and has been in place for a number of years talking around about stairwells for example mm. and we've heard various complaints in the past, talking around about Hindus and, and stag parties and, and so on. So, again, that kind of comes back to Edinburgh's planning kind of perspective in terms of that, but it's much broader, and the housing mix is much broader um, in terms of what we need to look at, what we need to do in Edinburgh, what we need to do in Glasgow, what we need to do in the Highlands, for example. So it's, that that may come through, we may see that in, in, in part of that, but the, the, the mix in terms of what we need to do yeah. and the solution around about that is much broader than just short-term lengths. And it's, so it's not it's not part of this policy to no I, I think we, we we talked you know this is in about safety and, and, and bringing that and bringing that up to the standards of where hotels it should be I, I continue to have discussions with as many local authorities I've got around more than half the local authorities since I've been in post to learn more and about what their individual circumstances and their authorities how we can support them in a more specific manner and that continues and I said meeting them in Edinburgh on a on a monthly basis at the moment to see how we can support them. You've mentioned the review that's going to come. When can we expect that? I think there's been differing set things said in public. Some have said very early next in 2024. Some have said later in 2024. When do you view that we, review? We had always in? talked around about probably around about first quarter in, in 2024, and obviously we'll take time to to review that. So I, I would imagine, you know, but certainly before the first half of 2024, we'll come back and and, and the findings on that. But we'd indicated right at the start, all the way through this process, it would be in the first quarter of 2024. What's that going to look at? I think obviously we've got delays with the industry advice group, so there are discussions going on around about that. We discussed obviously in discussing with the Airbnb in terms of what they were saying, and it's the key stakeholders. 
you know, obviously we mentioned I mentioned about living in the Coburn Association and so on. So the key stakeholders who've taken part in consultation processes before will be contacted as, as part of that. And obviously the local authorities them, themselves have said there has been flexibility to local authorities about how they interpret that. So we'll see how that's been implemented and, and taken that. So there are still ongoing discussions in terms of that. So we'll see the numbers that can come through. We'll see that learn for the process, for example, from solar and how that, that worked and, then, and see how we can look at that going forward. Obviously, there's, there's been kind of some answers uh, in the STL debate we had in Parliament a few weeks ago that suggest that aspects of the scope are going to be quite closely looked at, you know, such as the inclusion of B&Bs and other aspects. Is that something that you are going to look really closely at? In, in terms of the review, the review itself is on the, on the implementation. Mm. Um, obviously, we'll continue to discuss with local authorities in terms of what feedback they get they get from that. But it's certainly not that wasn't the scope of the the review. It's on it's on the implementation. So there's not uh, going to be an uh, amendment to the scheme to allow no, for I mean, some the, of the issues that no, been raised. No, I mean we'll continue. We'll always continue to you know. If, I mean, obviously, this has been in legislation. This is mm. implementation. Mm-hmm. So we'll obviously you know discuss with colleagues. Yeah, right across the, the sector and about how that, that, that's gone. But the, the, the review itself was around about how the, the policy was, was implemented. So you can guarantee that this scheme is going to be the same in a year as it is now? Yeah, I mean, as I said, yeah, the review was, 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 was looking at that. So scope won't change? We'll continue to, to look at the feedback we get in, in terms of that. But certainly the, the implementation review was all about the implementation. Uh, but again, you know, we'll take feedback from, from uh, it's any legislation that's brought forward, you know, you, you look at it and review it and see what the, you know, that can be going forward. But the implementation review itself is around about the implementation, how the policy and its, and its form, in this form. It was was brought in, and again we'll we'll discuss that with local authorities. You know they they are the ones that are obviously implementing this on the ground. So, mm. some um, folk on Twitter and social media etc have you know suggested that mountaineering club huts fall under this. Is that I've uh, seen that both is no. No, that's not the case. House swaps. Well, it depends if there's if there's a, a, a again. This has been raised. It depends of if there's monies, if there's commercial uh, kind of thing. So again, that that's something that's been clear. If it's if it's a house swap, and there's no commercial activity. So if I, if I if swapped my house with my mate and no money changed hands, it's it's fine. Yeah. If I if he paid me two hundred pounds, there, there's obviously some schemes where people can actually do house swaps and yeah. there's money passes hands. That that's deemed as commercial activity, and and obviously somebody coming across. Would be, would be in that position that you would have to make sure the safety standards because if somebody's going to come across and stay in, in Edinburgh they, they have to make sure that we've got the same safety, safety standards in place as they would if they went into a hotel and so on so that uh, that would have to be put in, in place We briefly touched on this not being about housing but it fundamentally is for many people a lot of the campaigners who are against the scheme go listen, we're being blamed for the housing crisis here which ultimately falls at you, the government's feet. I think some stats from last year show that social sector new house building starts fell by a quarter last year, down from 5,000 to 3,800. It feels to some that the Scottish government has failed to build enough homes and that businesses are suffering for fundamentally government failure and SNP failure. I think there's a couple of points just to raise in that one. The completions were at a 23 year high, just in, in the recent figures, at near 11,000. We build a forty percent more headed population than uh, the UK government and down in England, and seventy percent more than in, in Wales. You know, if we're talking about approvals and, and new starts, there's obviously been an issue, and this impacted on cost of living. And you know, our budget's three point five billion pounds. Construction inflation has been estimated between fifteen to twenty percent. So that's effectively taken seven hundred million pounds off the value of, of that. In discussions with uh, registered land, uh, social landlords. 
the borrowing costs has been a major impact about why they are not going out and building as quickly as they have in the past because they've probably estimated borrowing costs to be around about 2 or 3%. Mm-hmm. 1% if you're borrowing a huge amount of money for a, a registered social landlord and trying to keep the rents at a decent impacts on that. So there, you know, obviously we're discussing with local authorities about, about how we can bring schemes forward as soon as we can. But you know, inflation, and, and particularly construction inflation and the cost of living and the cost of borrowing has impacted on that. So we need to look at and about measures about how we bring more monies into the sector, how we bring investment into the sector. And, and that's an area that I'm really keen to, to pursue. Briefly on rent as well and, and the private rental sector. Again, folk who operate short term, let's say that they're being ostracised and blamed for you know, high rent rises. We've spoken a lot about Edinburgh, it's a particular problem in Edinburgh and Glasgow. What is more to blame for rent, the recent rent rises we've seen in Scotland? You know, is it the, the emergency rent freeze or is it something else? I think if you look at some of the rent increases in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow, which have been quoted, if you go down to Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds, they're, they're roughly around about the same. Rent costs in, in Scotland are slightly, uh, increases are slightly higher than they are in, in, uh, in England, uh, for example. It, it's supply and demand. Uh, you know, you're not going to be going to say that we don't need to build more houses, uh, and, and that and it's it's supply and demand. More people obviously want to stay in Edinburgh. I'm in East Lothian, and I've seen the same issue. Uh, now, the biggest uh, increases in house prices in, in Scotland are around about Mid Lothian and, and East Lothian because of the supply and demand issues. So, it, it, I, I'm, you know, it's not because of rent controls. I think there's an issue around about supply and demand. We need to be building more houses. The more houses we build, I think you'll see rental increases go down. And, and I think on the on the balancing side. The cost, you know, the cost of living, and how that impacted on on rents, and particularly Edinburgh and Glasgow, it was horrendous. You know, and we had to do something about it. Now, there's analysis of that continue to go on. That's going to be extended to, to next year, and the housing bill itself, I think, will pick up on longer term rent controls that the, the government have talked about. And obviously, we're liaising with all sectors in, in terms of that as well. But we need to get a, make sure we've got that balance across all all areas. And it comes back to the housing mix we talked in, in Edinburgh. The housing mix in Edinburgh is different to the Highlands, it's different to Argyll and Butte, for example. So it's supply and demand in terms of that. But obviously, we're continuing to analyse what you want the, 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 the rental increases, and that's right across the, the board and regionally in Scotland as well. So. Final question. Have you ever stayed in an Airbnb? No. Would you ever stay in an Airbnb? Yeah, of course I would. It's more, for me, it probably goes to hotels and, and so on. But it's not It's not a choice. Of course I would. The Airbnb sector and, and, and short-term care sector, I think, you know, as long as we come back to the point around about safety standards, and that's always something I would look out for now, obviously, would be in terms of that. Of course I would. Um, there are many, many thousands of self-care and, and Airbnb providers that are, that are fantastic and add to, to the value of Scotland. Brilliant. Paul McLennan, thank you very much. Housing Minister for the Scottish Government. Thank you. Thank you very much to Paul for chatting to us here on the Steamy. Last question for you both. Do we see Fergus Ewing coming back to the SNP or do you think he's maybe cut the cord for good? I mean, his sister is still in the party. His whole name is completely synonymous with the party as well. It would be, I think it would be a lot for him to to let that go personally. So I think we will see him coming back, yes. Alistair? Yeah, I think you will. I mean, from his point of view, you can cause a lot more trouble from within the party. And why not just come back and kind of dare Hamza Yusuf to take action again in the future? I mean, that's that's the way to get headlines, to keep the 
the media and the public interested. Absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. I'm sure we'll be writing plenty more on Fergus Ewing as the months and potentially even years up to 2026 continue to, to go on. Thank you very much, Alistair and Rachel, for joining me this week. Don't forget to sign up to Rachel's phenomenally curated newsletter every morning. Um, go on to scotsman.com newsletters. Go find the politics newsletter button, chuck your email address in and you'll get the steamy sent to you every day. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us and thank you very much at home for listening. Bye-bye.